0: Every knee will bow, every eye will see, everyone will shout, Jesus Christ is King. Let's continue this morning. We're going to continue our study in the book of Ephesians. If you are a guest with us this morning, I'm so, uh, again, grateful for the opportunity to see your face. I'd love a chance to meet you personally, and I'll be down front at the end of this service just um, even uh, to shake your hand, uh, but even more than that, if I could pray with you, if I could encourage you, if I could answer any questions about what we do here as a church, um, I'd love an opportunity to do that. But we are in a study in the book of Ephesians. We are um, right in the, I guess, the middle of chapter 2 in a sense. um, As you heard Chris read for us, Um, he picked up in verse 4, but our 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 primary attention is going to uh, lead us to verses 8, 9, and 10. And so, um, but in Ephesians, we have been talking about this identity, this subtitle that we gave to this series says, as you see behind me on the screen, that we may know and live. That Paul wrote this letter to us so that we would understand who Christ is, that we'd understand the power uh, of who He is, and that we might live according to that identity. And as we talked about in the very first week, that identity, our identity in Christ, is what drives everything that we do. And too often, um, as uh, was alluded to even somewhat this morning, with Tammy's testimony, sometimes we talk about how much we love Jesus, but then in the way we live, we don't live out of that identity as someone who was created and desires to love and worship Jesus with all of our lives. And we try to play both sides of the fence. And our culture is plagued by that. Uh, One of the reasons that we as a church have, in some senses, lost the influence that we once had in the world It's because we as the church have not understood who we really were. And so, my prayer uh, for this series as we work our way through the book of Ephesians is that we might be reminded, or perhaps some of you might come to know for the very first time, who you truly are as a Christ follower, as someone who claims the name of Christ. We spent a lot of time last week, the first few verses of chapter 2, essentially going through 1 through 6. And I talked about the idea that this um, first few verses is an encapsulation. There's so much power in verses 1 through 6, really I could go even 1 through 10. It encapsulates, in a sense, all of Romans chapter 1 through 3. So what Paul compresses down into just a few verses this morning, we're going to see he even compresses a little bit further. In verse 7, but this is what we build our lives on. This is the gospel. Verse 4, we need to be reminded once again, and I would encourage you to go back and listen last week, not because the message is great, but because the truth of God is great. Go back and listen, and be reminded that yes, we are all- Dead in our trespasses. That's once who we were. If you're a Christ follower today, none of us are exempt from that. There's no amount of holiness or anything that we've done post-salvation that could say, but I wasn't really dead before. No, we were dead, and we were looked at verse 4 in those first verses, but God. Without God, if He had not moved in our lives, we would still be those who are walking around dead, not alive. Looking animated, a little bit like A Weekend at Bernie's, but dead. Three of you have seen that movie, unfortunately. (laughs) It's very old. But God, even while we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, clearly describing not because of what we had done, but because of His great love for us. After all, just consider, when we were dead in our trespasses, what could we possibly have done to please God? There was nothing. Can the corpse in the ground say to itself, live again and go and do great things? No. That's impossible. We know that to be true. Only God must breathe life into the corpse into our dead bodies, into our dead souls. And then and only then can we live and be made alive. And that is for the Christian brothers and sisters. That is what Christ has done for us. And so the point that Paul makes as he emphasizes this in verse 5. He says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then there's this parenthetical you might have in your Bibles, two lines. By grace you have been saved. And he emphasizes this point of grace. And so now... When we pick back up in verse 8, it's as if Paul thought to himself, he was going along this line of thought and teaching and all about what Christ has done, and he says, I need to tell them, for grace you have been saved. But I just need to put this in right now, because I'm going to get to that more in a minute. I'm going to unpack that a little bit further. And in a sense, last week's message and this week's message could be combined. They're really one message. We just, for sake of time, because, you know, the Cowboys played, we had to stop. So we're going to pick back up, all right? (laughs) By grace you have been saved. He pauses. But then in verse 7, excuse me, in verse 8, he comes back to this thought, for by grace you have been saved through faith. What I hope to do this morning is to help us to fully grasp the grace of God as the source of everything we have. Everything we have is related or is contingent upon God's grace. And Paul thought it was more important, he couldn't just leave that parenthetical up there in verse 5, for grace you have been saved. He recognized he needed to come back, because it was so important. And if we miss the magnitude of God's grace, we will always struggle to live with true faith. If we don't really come to understanding of God's grace in our life, the radicalness of His grace, the undeservedness of grace, which is by definition (laughs) grace— then we will not fully worship him. The reason that we can sing words but not feel them in our heart is because we really don't understand the depravity of our own hearts and the need for God's grace in our lives. Only when we understand that will we really worship Jesus. Will we lay down our lives for Jesus? By grace, you have been saved. But this time, if you notice... In verse 7, it says, by grace you have, or verse 8, I keep referencing 7, I don't know why. The Lord will take me back there in a moment. For by grace you have been saved, he adds, through faith. Through faith. So, we understand from last week that we were once dead in our trespasses, but again, but God made us alive together with Christ through Him, but for all, but through the work of Christ and what He accomplished on our behalf. What does it mean to be saved? How are we saved? Not by works. That's what he's emphasizing here. That's why he wanted to come back to it. It is all grace. And this, of course, the reason he needs to tell us this, the reason we need to be reminded of this, is because it's completely contrary to what our flesh would tell us. We tell ourselves, and I just confess to you so often, I think to myself, well, I've done pretty well. I did a little bit better today than I did yesterday. We start stacking up our wins against our losses, and very often we think to ourselves, hey, I think I've done enough. God will accept me based on this. I did a good deed yesterday. I was kind. Whatever we might put in the blank there, we think to ourselves, surely God will accept me because of this. And Paul, in the Bible, God himself is saying, friends, no, you are not accepted based upon what you do well Because absent of God's grace, what does the verse say? We are dead in our trespasses, unable to do anything that would please God. God's holiness and His righteousness are so unattainable for us. We can't can't fully grasp them. He is so other than us that our works, even the good ones, the Bible says, according to the prophet Isaiah, are like filthy rags. Some of you know that we are in the midst of trying to plan our, our permanent home. We meet in a school, if you haven't noticed. Um, we don't own this building. Uh, and so we're, we're in the, the works as a church and a leadership team, elders and others are, are, are trying to just discover and, and, and allow the Lord to lead us in finding a, a permanent place here in Melissa. And so as we've met with the team, one of the things that we've done is we've met with um, architects. And I took a semester as an architecture major and I'm quite creative, so I like to offer my... Um, Ideas, And so, periodically, there's been more than a few times where I've gotten up on a whiteboard, and I'm like, what if we did this? And I try to start and sketch it, and I look at it, and and then the architect gets up there, and then he goes to work, and in about three seconds, he makes my little square and rhombus and kind of angular-looking thing that looks just terrible. It looks like a a preschool self-portrait compared to the Mona Lisa, just no matter how. But guess what? It's my best effort. I'm doing the best I can. I I was trained for a whole like six hours of classes in this. (laughs) And yet, my best effort is like worthless compared to the one. This that doesn't fully grasp, that is a weak illustration of the distance between who we are and who God is, His holiness, His bigness. God's standards are so high that they could only be met by Himself. There is nothing in us that could meet his standard. This is why we had to be met by Jesus Christ. We could not meet the standard. It doesn't matter the volume or the sincerity of your heart, you cannot stack up enough good works to measure the righteousness of God, the holiness of God. And so. The reality is, just like me, if I look at my little scribble on the whiteboard, if I'm honest with myself, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that every day is one step forwards, two steps back in our attempts to please God, in our attempts to earn our righteousness or to earn our justification. We cannot do it. There is nothing available to us but Christ alone and His grace. You have been saved because of God's grace. Now, but he adds on here in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved. And this time, in contrast to verse 5, he says, through faith. Faith, it seems, is the immediate response to the grace of God. It's a response to the grace of God. You know, when my second son was born, he was... uh, Right immediately when he was born, he was blue, um, and he made no sound. And I'm sure that the nurses could see the fear and the anxiousness and the anxiety on my face as I looked at my son, blue. And I understood a little bit of that there were some troubles in his delivery with his umbilical cord being wrapped around his neck and him being deprived of oxygen. I could just, and I can remember the, 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 the heaviness and the weight that I felt in that very moment, but the nurse... Seeing that on my face, turned to me and just said, he just needs a little oxygen. She calmed my fears. I heard her message of mercy that everything will be okay, and my fears went away. I immediately believed and had faith that Carson would be all right, because she had the capacity to tell me the truth. The nurse delivered a message of grace that it will be okay. By the grace of God, He has sent His Spirit to raise us up from the dead, and we respond in this new, regenerate life with belief and trust. When we hear the grace of God spoken to us through His Spirit, when we hear the message that you don't have to keep trying to stack up your wins against your losses, that you don't have to be good enough, we hear that message of grace, and we know it's going to be okay. And then we respond with faith. I want us to look at the story of Nicodemus from John chapter 3, and this won't be behind me on the screen, so you're going to have to open your Bibles or turn them on, um, and you can just flip over to your left. If you don't own a Bible and you'd like a copy, there's one in the first seat of every row. You can take that with you. That's our gift to you, by the way, if you don't own a copy, or if you lost your copy of God's Word. Just don't leave here not knowing how to access God's Word when you get home in a moment. But if you'll turn with me to John chapter 3 in this story of Nicodemus. In verses 1 through 8, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. John 3, it says this, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. This Pharisee had seen all that Jesus had gone around town doing, all of the miracles that he had performed, and he knew that this means that he was God. There was something unique about him. He had been sent by God. In verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, excuse me, let me go back to his questions. We know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with them. And then Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So this man had seen the evidence of God at work in Jesus, but he didn't understand who Jesus was. He couldn't fathom how Jesus was able to do what he had done. Why? Because at this moment in time, he had not been born again. He had not been revealed to the Nicodemus through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so then this leads Nicodemus, again, a Pharisee, someone who knew the Bible very, very well, knew the law, knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. So Nicodemus says, well, wait, you're saying I can't tell who you are really until I'm born again. That makes no sense to me, God, or Jesus. He doesn't acknowledge him as God yet. Nicodemus says, verse 4, how can a man be born When he is old, can he enter, um, excuse me, can he enter, need more light, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And here's a Jesus' parable of explanation. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, in order for you to understand who I am, in order for you to respond to me properly, the Spirit of God has to awaken you. You have to be born again. And so if we come back over to what Paul is teaching us about being saved in our new life, it is the Holy Spirit of God who breathes life into us and wakes us up. And just as Nicodemus, we pray, would maybe one day wake up to this truth, he would end up being at the cross, by the way. He would take Jesus' body down and be a part of that. We don't hear the story of his salvation, but it's believed that the Holy Spirit did wash over him, did wake him up to new life. And in that, he responded with faith. But as ultimately it started... It is completed fully in the grace of God. Having received God's grace, we respond with faith. Nicodemus heard this message of Jesus, and at this moment in time, he couldn't understand it. But later, he would be awakened to the grace of God. So grace is received. Grace is received. It's not earned. We don't stack it up. It is fully the gift of God. But then, Paul does say, for grace you have been saved through faith. When we receive, what is this idea of faith? When we receive God's grace, we respond in faith. One commentator, and it's hard to find a clear definition of faith, but one commentator defined faith this way, belief plus trust. That's what faith is. Belief plus trust. Back to my story about Carson. Why was I calmed? I received the message of grace, everything is going to be okay. Why was I calmed by that? Because I believed that she had the authority to know the truth, and I trusted that what she told me was the truth, and I was calmed. That's what faith is. Jesus said over and over again to believe, and he connected this idea of belief with faith. It seems to communicate that as we believe, it's our expression of faith, belief and trust. I believe what Jesus said about himself, and therefore I have faith, I have confidence, I have trust that his promises are true. I encourage you to go to John chapter 3, flip a few pages over, excuse me, and turn to John chapter 6. Jesus speaking about himself from John chapter 6 says this, verse 35. What a beautiful sound, the flipping of pages. (laughs) I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. And the Father gives me, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, the Father sent him. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He gives me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. I receive the mercy of God, the grace of God. I believe because of that grace that I have experienced the power of His Holy Spirit waking me up to life. And now, because of my belief, I hold on that that is true. Jesus said, he will raise me up. Jesus said that death will not be the last stand for me. Jesus says that I will have eternal life. Because I've received his grace, I know what he says is true. And I live in that identity with that hope. So that nothing that comes my way in this life, nothing that I come face to face with, yes I battle and I struggle, I even teeter a little bit every now and again, but by God's grace I stay anchored that this is the truth. This is the hope of my life. Romans 1:16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of the God of salvation to all who believe. I'm not ashamed. It's the good news of Jesus. Why am I not ashamed of it? Because it's the power of God to raise me up. It's the power of God to save me. The very next verse that is much less often tattooed on our arms says this, the righteous shall live by faith. We believe and then we live. And we live out of that belief. That is what faith looks like. And Paul explains it further at the end of verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And guess what? Just as I reminded you, this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one would boast. We are justified. What that means, we are reconciled to God. When God looks upon us, he does not see our sinful state. He sees us in our justified being because of what Christ has done. And none of that is because of what we have done. We are justified by faith alone. And if we remove, though, if we remove grace from the equation, guess what that does? Paul warns against it here. We become very man centered. We begin to what? We don't boast in the Lord, we boast in ourselves, we boast in our works. If we could do enough to cause God to respond to us, we surely would. We would try with all our might. And if we could do that, we would have much to boast about. That's why Paul would say, I was the Pharisee of all Pharisees. I was a Jew of Jews. According to the law, if there was anyone on this planet at this moment in time, Paul speaking here, I am the one that would have much to boast about. And what does he say? I counted it all as worthless. It was rubbish. It was meaningless, no matter what I could do, because he understands that everything he had was received by the grace of God. But if we take grace away, then all that we're left with is is our own striving. You want to know why some of us are exhausted in our striving, in our effort to try and please God, to try and earn our favor with God, to try and live the right way, because we have missed, forgotten, let go of the grace of God, that we have been received fully by Him. This isn't true. We have to remember that faith is a result of grace. God is God. And as a result, everything that we are is a result of his grace. What does he say? For by grace you have been saved, not or been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Verse 10: For we are his workmanship. We are his Notice that emphasis, not a result of works. We receive the grace of God, and then the faith comes, and we live this out, and we're justified by our faith in Christ, by our belief in Christ alone. And we don't boast in anything but Christ. And if you think about this, just Christians, and this is just a, a, a concern, something that we should be cautious about within the church What causes us most often to get upset with one another? I'm speaking about believers to believers, fellow heirs, those that we're going to one day spend eternity with side by side singing to Jesus, and down here we're sitting here rubbing shoulders bickering at one another. Why? It's usually what I, in my experience, is that we're not doing something that we think the other one should be doing. I see this as a value, and therefore you should see this as a value. I believe that this is a mark of faith, and so if you're really a faithful believer, you'll do this as well. We go on and on, and God here is telling us that it's not about what we're doing. It's not about our works. We're going to get to what we were created for in a moment, but right now he addresses our sinful nature to, the, to take the things that we can do and see and make them God's and replace justified by faith alone with justified by something in the Blake alone. We fill it in. We find our justification in our ability. What do the Pharisees do? In their ability to keep the law. But that's not what the law was ever intended to do. The law was intended to reveal to them and to all of us, we don't measure up. God's holiness is something so much other than us. That's what the law was given to do. But when we take the law and we make it our point of justification, we become like a Pharisee. This is the statements that might ring in your head if, you, if this is a, a, a truth for you and maybe something to caution against. I'm a true Christian because I go to church every week. I'm a true Christian because I serve the poor on a regular basis. I'm a true Christian because I went on this or that mission trip not too long ago. I'm a true Christian because I care for orphans. I've adopted orphans. I'm a Christian because I open up my home in hospitality and serve in certain ways. I'm a true Christian because I pray. I'm a true Christian because I go to this or that Bible study. None of those things are what justify us before God, brothers and sisters. Now, I'm not diminishing those things. Again, he's going to get to that in a moment. But what he wants us to clearly understand at first is that that is not what makes us right before God. It is his grace through faith alone that saves us. You are truly a Christian because God chose you before the foundation of the world that you would be holy and blameless before him, verse 5, and determined, he determined to adopt you as his son or daughter, verse 6. So while you were walking around like a dead person in your sins and trespasses, his, his spirit raised you to new life because of his grace, his love, his mercy, and he gave you faith to believe in what Jesus said of himself. That's what makes you a Christian. Belief in that. That God came to die so that you might live, so that you would never thirst or hunger for righteousness from anything outside of yourself, but you would find it fully in the completed work of Christ. That's why you're a Christian. I talked about how Paul condenses his theology from Romans 1 through 3 into 1 through 10 of of chapter 2, and really that verse right there in verses 8 through 10, this is the, the, the most concise one of the most concise proclamations of the gospel in all of Scripture. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of work so that none of us, no one may boast. Not even me would boast. Not even you would boast. None of us could boast. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. He has made us alive. Now, you notice I cut off verse 10, and some of you might be thinking, wow, man, I thought he wanted us to go on mission. I thought he wanted us to be hospitable. I thought we were supposed to open up our homes. He talks about every fourth Sunday about going to prayer service, and he just beats us up because we don't go to prayer service, and uh, we have Bible study and all these. Those are all great things. We're called to do all of those things. That's a matter of obedience. Obedience. That's a matter of following Christ, the result of faith at work when we really step into that identity, then we realize the completeness of verse 10. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. He does not connect our salvation. There are no lines connected to our justification before God to those good works. Grace yields faith. Faith yields belief, and belief yields obedience. That's the order of things. And so often in the American church, we flip that on its head, and we've thought, if I can just be obedient enough, if I do enough of these other things, then I really don't have to care about his grace or my faith or anything else like that. I will stack up enough obedience that I will prove to God that I love him. And he says, "No." no, that's a bunch of filthy rags, young man. Get that off my whiteboard. Let me show you what a real picture looks like none of it stacks up, but the grace of God and faith. And then when we recognize why God did all of this, what is the chief end of man? What is the purpose for which we were created? You want to know, young people, you ask this question all the time, what am I doing in this world? You were created to enjoy and glorify God forever and ever, amen. That's why we exist to bring glory to God and to enjoy His mercy and kindness. Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The works that we do are a result of all that He has already done. We're not justified by these things. We have been raised to life so that we might do these things, so we might bring glory to Him. An old-time pastor says this. I love this quote. Shall the architect draw the plans for his stately palace? Shall the artist sketch the outlines of his masterpiece? Shall the shipbuilder lay down the lines of his colossal ship? And yet, shall God have no plan for the soul which he brings into being and puts in Christ Jesus? All of those earthly endeavors... We plan and we have a purpose for, and we think to ourselves that our God, who breathed life into us and created us, we are His workmanship, does not have a plan for us. Surely He has. Yea, for every cloud that floats across the summer sky, for every blade of grass that points its tiny spear heavenward, God has a purpose and a plan. How much more then, for you who are his own in Christ Jesus, does God have a perfect plan for your life? All of that, though, in response to who he is and what he has done. When we settle for justification by the small works of God that we might do, we miss justification by faith alone. And if we take faith out, if we're absent of faith, we will do ultimately very, very little Without true faith given to us by God, we'll never see the big things that God that are written into our story. And by the way, when I say big, I don't mean grand. I don't mean that's getting all over the Twitterverse or whatever other thing, Instagram. I mean the big things of God, very often the unseen things, but the big things that God is doing in our midst, in and through us. When we lose our faith When we separate our faith from those things, they become small and trivial, and we're going to just be constantly trying to do more. Back to those lists that I gave you when we were trying to be justified by our works, we went to church every week. Having been justified by faith alone, though, we now rightly see the body of Christ as our one true family, and we live and give our lives away for one another. That's what justified by faith alone leads us to as we're obedient to Christ. We were trying to be justified by our works of service to the poor. We went begrudgingly to our place of service and found opportunities anytime we could to just find some new thing that we might do that might make us feel a little bit better like we could do it. And we just sort of dabble in it. We do our annual excursion to go serve here or there, having been justified by faith we now love others as Christ does, and we give our lives away fully in service to others. When we were trying to be justified by our works, we'd go on the mission trip once a year. Having been justified by faith, we now anchor our lives around how we can take the gospel around the world to those who have not heard, as well as down the street to our neighbors. Our prayer, our money, our vacation are all spent on kingdom things. Not these small things. That's what happens when we have faith, when we believe. Belief leads to something. There are so many good works, so many good things to be done in this world. None of them save you. None of them have the power to do that. Only Christ has the power. You are saved, it says, because you are his workmanship, and God created you to do good works. Works done in response to the grace of God are fueled by great faith and a desire to bring glory to our justifier. Don't be captivated by the things of man, the small things. Be captivated by God. Live lives of faith in the way that God created you to do them. Notice it says, You are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. If you were with us in chapter 1, you remember that beforehand, before he created the world, he saw you, and it says that he chose you to adopt you as his son or his daughter. And when he did that beforehand, he saw all of the good things that you would do to bring glory and honor to his name. And he created you, he breathed life into you so that you would do those things. Not so that you could be brought to Him. Those were all in response to being brought to Him, being His. God doesn't need us, friends, to do these good works. He invites us to be a part of what He is doing, and He created us to do them. I'll close with this. This week, my oldest son, he taught me about this. He he instructed my heart as I listen to him speak. So you might know he's worked at Pine Cove, one of the camps that we are a part of, we attend, and he was offered a job to come back to work there this next summer. And based on the camp's needs, they hire college students to come and work them. And, um, but they asked him, they said that we really only need you this summer. We need you to work uh, a half of the summer as a, a counselor working with kids. But then the second half of the summer, we need you to kind of be behind the scenes. There's some um, you know, stuff in the kitchen and, and you know, all of the operational side of things. Um, and like anyone, he loves kids. He loves serving there. It's been a joy in his heart to do that. Um, and his immediate response was a, a level of disappointment. He called me and said, well, they only, I only get to be a counselor for the first half, for just a portion of the summer. I don't get to be with the kids all, all summer long. And, but he said, I'm just going to pray about it and just kind of see um, what the Lord tells me. And so he called me on Wednesday morning, and he says, you know, Dad, God doesn't need me to do anything at Pine Cove. If he wanted to, he could use the grass to do it. But he's invited me to be a part of what he's doing there. And how selfish would it be of me to think that my plans and purposes are better than God's? To think that I need to do these things or that? Because that's where I'll get the most edification. That's where I'll get the most honor. That's where I'll have the most fun. He said, no, that that would be silly. So I'm going to take that job with joy. I'm going to go and serve, and I'll be a counselor for a part of it, and I'll take out the trash for six weeks if I need to. That's a young man who's in awe of his justifier who's not learning or is not trying to earn his salvation before God, who doesn't need to be out front so that everybody can see his good works. That's a young man who has faith. And his faith promotes him to be obedient, to say, I'll lay down my life for the sake of others. And if God wants me taking out the trash, then I'll take out the trash for God's glory. Let us be a people who live with the faith to trust in what God has done. You were created, brothers and sisters. Life was breathed into you because of his grace. And because of his grace, he's he's given you faith. And out of that faith, we go out and we serve the world, not because it points back to us, because it points to him. Let's be that kind of people. Let me pray, and then we're going to sing in response. To that truth. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you for your grace in my life, Lord. Undeserved. I'm not worthy. And yet, you, before you created this world, you saw my pitiful estate and you breathed life and you raised me up at your perfect timing. You filled me with the power of your Spirit so that I might know you. And so I thank you for that truth. I pray that every soul in this room would have the joy that I have in my heart over being known by God, having received your grace. And as a church, Lord, having received that grace, and now now being able to believe and who you are and that your promises are true, help us to just to, to, to serve and to, to work out of obedience, not out of an attempt to earn favor with you, God. If there's anyone in this room who does not yet know the beauty and the power of your salvation. Holy Spirit, would you come now and would you, as you did in my life once before, would you breathe life into them? Would you raise the dead to life and give them faith so that they might believe in what we have declared from your word? Your word said it, God, not me. It's your word that says who you are, Lord Jesus, and what you have done. And so would you give faith to believe that what you say is true? And out of that would obedience come. We love you, Jesus. That's why we stand now and we sing of your amazing grace. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Parks Church of Melissa podcast. We meet at 1030 Sunday mornings at Melissa Middle School, and we look forward to seeing you there soon. The Parks Church, for the city, about a person.